Oh dear. Welcome to the Coffee and Coding Podcast, where we discuss all things app development. I'm your host, Rob J, and in this episode, I speak with software developer, course creator, blogger, and Android conspiracy theorist, Vasily Zukanov. We talk about remote working and the impact COVID has had on the software engineering industry, the future of Android, how to value your time, why he hates Dagger, spoiler, I do too, Flutter, Fuchsia, and much, much more. Now on to the show. So before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Dim Whittle, who left a review on Apple Podcasts this week, top interviews with great tips and insights into mobile app development, very valuable information, thanks. So huge thanks to Dim Whittle for doing that. And if you're a regular listener of this podcast and you like the podcast, and I assume if you're a regular listener, then you must like the show, then I would really, really appreciate if you could also go and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. I believe I'm right in saying that Spotify now also allows you to leave a review. So wherever you listen to podcasts, if you could go and leave a review, I would really, really appreciate it. And secondary to that, if you would like to support the show and haven't done so already, then you can do so with a coffee donation. If the name doesn't give it away, this show is fueled by caffeine and you can make a coffee donation by going to coffeeencodedpod.com slash buy me a coffee. And with that said, now onto the show. I guess to start off with, right, because I was thinking about this, I was like, one of the questions I have is just like, you know, you could just tell me conspiracy theories because I don't know all of them and you know all of them. So you can pick and choose. But before we get there, right, so I don't want to get into the COVID conversation too much, but I do have a question that's COVID related and then you can take it wherever you want. Okay. So in terms of like COVID, right, as far as I'm aware, and correct me if I'm wrong, you still do like some consultancy work and you've been doing courses like your Udemy, uh, I checked out yesterday. There's a ton of, I'm pretty sure, new stuff from like the last year. Is that right? Well, unfortunately, it's not a ton of new stuff, but currently I have, I think, six or seven courses on Udemy, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. So I guess the best question would be, how has COVID impacted your business? So the last time we spoke, it was like everybody was in lockdown. I don't think we touched on it too much. And then we obviously didn't know how long it was going to kind of drag on. So like at this point, how has that impacted it in terms of like good or bad? Or- wow. That's a very interesting question because... I have basically my business is like two facets. I'm a consultant and I'm a course creator, right? And I have all kinds of hobbies, but let's not count them in. Just like courses and consultancy. So when COVID hit, I think most people remember that, especially those of us who are freelancers, like business just gone. Freelance business, consulting business just totally gone. Companies were very afraid that they will not have money. No one knew what will happen. So everybody just can't try it, you know, to grab all the money they have to lower the expenses as much as they could and just, you know, like see where the thing is going. So today we already know that for IT sector, for basically high tech sector, COVID was probably the best thing that could happen. Like everything is blooming and, and there's a lot of work and all the companies are like crazy rounds of uh, um, money raising and stuff, but there were several months that were, well, basically there was no jobs. There were no jobs at all. Uh, I've had some very small gigs with my past clients. Uh, So for example, I've got a client who is like, um, well, I can't tell too much about them, but let's say they provide services to uh, grocery shops. 
So imagine like COVID, like before COVID, everything uh, was centralized and you know, this big uh, um, like Walmart uh, style franchises, they expanded. But when COVID hit, people actually tried to kind of um, reduce their exposure. So instantly all these small mark, small shops, uh, you know, local neighborhood shops, instantly they become much more important for people. They, they were the... How, how did they call them? Essential workers, right? So when we all were shut down, uh, all these small grocery shops, not, not just small, but I mean, all these kind of smaller shops, they become, became very important. So I've had this client for whom it was clear from the very onset of COVID that they're like, wow, we need to, to kind of capitalize on this opportunity. And this sounds uh, terrible because people are dying and people losing their livelihoods. But still, you know, we need to acknowledge the fact that for a high high tech COVID was just like the best thing that could happen. And many people like made a fortune out of that. So that was kind of several months of kind of very <laughs> shaky and unstable situation where I actually thought that I might need to get a job because it wasn't clear at all that, you know, my freelance business, my consulting business will get back in, in a reasonable amount of time. And on the courses side, on the education side, it was completely the opposite. So when COVID hit and all the governments around the world started lockdowns and uh, people basically lost their jobs. And in many places you've got this kind of, um, I don't know how we call it, welfare. Like you lose, you don't lose your job, but you are out of your job, but the government pays your salary still, right? And then I saw a huge uptick in course enrollments. And that was like, not just me, everybody saw that because people, they were sitting at home, they were getting their salaries and they thought, okay, we will try to make something good out of this two, three, four weeks lockdowns. Well, we know how that played out, but that was the mood back then. Everybody thought that, okay, we have now, let's say one month of time to spare. So let's try to make it um, to make the best use of it. And, and actually to my students, I sent emails like that. Like you have now some time on your hands, like, come on, let's use it for, you know, learn new stuff and, and everything. And then after a month, two months, three months, uh, there was like two or three months of a very high interest in, in online education. And then it's basically plateaued. And then it's, it got down um, to even lower than pre-COVID demands because well, I guess many people just bought courses and spend some time watching uh, online lectures and then they get bar bored with it because you can't watch online lectures for three months in a row. And today it's uh, pretty much back to normal, I think. All right, that's interesting. So so I, I have a question on that. How, but how was your, you're a freelancer too. So yeah, I, yeah. I wonder how was it in the UK? So when the COVID stuff started, I was freelancing for a, for a startup. Um, I was lead there and I think I was on like a, a year contract or a six month or something like that. Um, and cause they were a startup and they weren't ready to launch yet. And they already had, had funding. They, their situation was like, this is great because now we have like, no, nobody's looking at us right now. We have like, you know, six months to a year, however long this thing's going to last for us to get the product ready. So when everything goes back to normal, you know, quote unquote, then they can, so I, I didn't have an issue and I was with that company until October, 2020. And then since then I've had like, so I think the rest of the year, I think I did one gig and um, which was just covering like for a month, freelance gig covering somebody's holiday. And then since then this year, 2021 has been pretty normal. Like I get approached a bunch for, for roles. It seems like people figured it out. And the great thing for me 
that COVID did was so pre-COVID, I was always working remote, but I would always have to kind of negotiate that. So I'd yeah. get calls from recruiters, right? And they'd be like, oh, you know, we got this role is six months. You're going to get paid this much, et cetera. And I'd be like, all right, that's cool. But I only want to work remotely. And they would be like, oh, I don't know if we could do that. And I'd be like, all right, that's fine. But then this job is not for me. So then they would change their tune and they'd be like, well, maybe you could do one day remote or two days remote. And, yeah. I, and I'd be like, no, I can do my job from home. I want to work remotely. And now it's the opposite. Like I, every job is remote. I don't even ask a question. And they would have to tell me first, like, oh, by the way, we need you to be in the office three days a week or something. So in that, it's like definitely made a positive impact because it just showed people that, you know, well, the job that we all do, we can do from home. It involves a laptop and an internet connection. It doesn't involve being anywhere. Yeah. Um, well, so then I guess you are on, uh, there's a d debate, right? There's a, like different opinions about remote work. And some yeah. people think that it's like the best thing after sliced bread. And some people, well, I don't think anyone thinks that it's bad. So like, there are no people who think it's bad, but I'm, I fall on the side where I say that remote work is not for everyone, far from, not for, it's for a minority of people because I myself struggle with remote work. It's not something that I really enjoy doing. I mean, I enjoy the flexibility, I enjoy the freedom, but there's lack of social activity, socialization, lack of having, like, I mean, I've been doing remote work for maybe four years now, I think, and I still can't get over the fact that I don't have people to have lunch with. So I'm working currently with two clients, kind of in parallel. And I visited one of them like uh, about a week ago. It was so fun. It's like, I actually, I was there at their office and, you know, talking to their CTO and stuff. And then I was just like, caught myself thinking, well, that's so fun. It's like, I haven't had such a close up interaction professionally for people with people for maybe I don't know, six months, a year. So there's like, yeah, I mean, when people approach me and ask me, like, you know, you work from home, it's how, like, is it good? Is it bad? Like, it's probably, well, most people just assume that it's awesome, but there are downsides. And I think personally that it's not for everyone. And I don't think that it's even for majority of people. What I do believe is great is having an option for a remote work, like, let's say twice a week. One day a week is amazing. Twice a week is just like completely awesome. And I don't see companies leveraging that. Like, Companies ne negotiate all kinds of benefits, like you get candies, you get foosball table, you get some shit stuff. Like give people work from home one, two days a week and you will get the best talent out there. And actually for that, I think COVID will be great because now companies can actually do that and they don't need to convince their managers. So, so hopefully this will be the next step that you know many companies, they will get back to offices sooner or later, but then they will be much more friendly or like I'm taking one, two days from home working remotely. And then you have time, you know, babysit your kids, doing your laundry, whatever it is that you want to do when you're at home. Yeah, no, I would agree. And, and I would agree. It's not for it. Like for me, it's definitely for me because I'm like super introvert. Like I like going to the office. You introvert? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Like I like going to office like once a month when if I'm working for a good company and there's good people there. I could go once a month, I get to meet people, we get to have lunch, it's cool. But every time I've worked in an office, like full, like, you know, contract has to be in an office. I don't talk to people. Like I don't go for lunch. I go for lunch by myself. I go for a walk. I got my headphones on. Like, so for me, working at home is like the perfect scenario. I work when I work like, and also because, so I work, wake up most days like six o'clock, right? Yeah. And I'm super productive in the morning. So I can wake up, I can code from like six o'clock 
until you know say nine o'clock i can go walk the dog i can come back i've already done three hours work before anybody else in the office has even started doing anything so for me it's super beneficial but for most yeah i would agree for most people who want that social interaction then yeah either yeah what you said like either remote with a few days in the office or mostly in the office with remote works works much better for sure yeah i've had an experience of like my my first proper job in high tech was like that they allowed basically one day remote work and you didn't even have to kind of you know negotiate and ask for permission you just send an email at, at the morning like working from wfh and everybody knows that they don't expect you and it worked amazing and the productivity was super high so that was basically the best setup that i think will fit most people so anyone who's interested in remote work that's the way uh, like i mean i can't recommend because maybe someone is like as introverted as you are which kind of surprises me given you are doing podcasts no i mean it's given <laughs> it's given the situation right and also like i i've said this to a bunch of people for like for me like if me and you were in a room like i've spoke to you a couple of times it would be su- it would be fine right we'd have a conversation it would yeah. be good but but if me and you were meeting for the first time your impression of me would be very different than it would be on a podcast also because a podcast is like i get to ask questions so you know if if there's any point in in a normal conversation where it would get you know a bit uncomfortable being an introvert i can just ask a question and you just talk and i have to say nothing so it works out really well mm. um but i think it just depends like half of it's introvert and half of it's i think just i'm a bit lazy when it comes to people like i'm not one of those people that needs like lots and lots of friends and stuff so like i'm nice and i'm polite and like that kind of stuff but if you ask me do i want to go to lunch with this person i just met or do i want to go to lunch by myself and listen to a podcast i'd probably pick the second option yeah well this makes sense yeah the podcast the podcast hides it well and and i guess the podcast also actually helps like me be more communicative because yeah it's 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 nice to have conversations it's just always a struggle for me to get into the conversations in the first place so this makes it a little bit easier yeah i mean you, you have kind of clear agenda for this conversation even though you don't know ahead of time where it, where it's going you kind of have this box that the high level detail yeah exactly yeah, yeah 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 no yeah it makes yeah it makes it more comfortable for me so yeah if anyone's listening i'm, I'm an introvert so <laughs> do not be mistaken <laughs> <laughs> oh brilliant quick interruption if you're a fan of the show i'd love it if you could leave it a positive rating review in your podcast app of choice contrary to what you might have heard it doesn't actually help the show be discovered but it does provide the social proof that it's a show worth listening to. So if you have 30 seconds to spare, I'd really, really appreciate it. And now back to the show. All right, so so I have a couple of other things um, that I wanted to talk about. So one of them, um, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this. So last time you were on the podcast, one of the things that you were talking about is is the, the Google Oracle case, which now has come to an end. And your theory was that, you know, future was going to be basically their, their backup. If they, if they lose the case, future's the future. And there's no Android, right? And then, so they didn't lose the case. Um, and and so, you know, Fuchsia is, is not the replacement for Android. But Fuchsia is rolling out on, um, like, random Google Home devices. And it looks exactly the same as Android. So I just kind of wanted to get, like, your thoughts now based on, like, that case ending. Where, where do you see that going? And, and what do you see as the future of Android? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me kind of take a step back and maybe waste several minutes of your listeners time no, go for just it. to explain what happened in this case because people don't actually understand um, what happened there were two questions on in this case so the first question was the copyright copyright copyrightability of apis 
And the second question was that of a fair use. And people kind of conflate that. They think that like, um, this, all this lawsuit was about just one thing, but actually this were, there were two. And there were like two stages defense for Google. The first line of defense was that they tried to make all APIs not cooperatable, right? That was the first line. And they failed in that. And then they tried to argue that their use of Java, Java APIs is basically a fair use. And I just want to explain to people that uh, several years ago, people who were in the industry several years ago when this uh, show basically started, they might remember a huge campaign arguing that, you know, if Oracle wins in this lawsuit, if APIs are deemed copyrightable, that will be the end of our industry because no developer will be able to use any third party and you will not be able to kind of blah, blah, blah. And there were always this um, shared uh, several lines of code, like uh, Google copied the several lines of code verbatim. And that's why Oracle tries to argue for billions. So all of that uh, is factually today, we know it's factually wrong. It was just propaganda. I don't have any other word for that. It was just propaganda funded by Google and its associates. And uh, after this lawsuit is over, what happened is that District Court of United States decided that APIs are copyrightable. And that's actually no change because APIs, any code, any productive work has been always copyrightable. And this lawsuit didn't change it. And it was actually Google who tried to change this stuff. And then if they would succeed, then the industry as a whole would need to kind of adapt to this new reality that actually something that you produce, invest a lot of time and work into is not actually copyrightable. So on that front, Google actually lost because uh, the Supreme Court of the United States did not bother even hearing arguments in that respect. They did not wait on this question. Whatever district court said, that's what holds for now until maybe, you know, in the future, someone else will try to argue something similar. But factually, all this hysteria passed. APIs remain copyrightable, copyrightable as they were. The industry, as people can just look around, the industry stands the same, nothing changed. You can use whatever you want, whatever you use. It has never been a threat to anyone in the industry except for Google, the question of APIs copyrightability. And I think for us, that's a huge lesson to learn for like people who are in the industry and we like take sides on all kinds of debates, you know, whether it's Emacs versus VI, iPhones, negative Androids, uh, Google versus Oracle. Like we need to be very careful believing in like orchestrated um, big PR campaigns because most of the time that these are just, you know, uh, they serve some kind of a purpose and they're not always uh, honest. And even though many very like prominent computer scientists signed these petitions in, in, in to support Google, you know, arguing that if APIs will be copyrightable, then the industry will end. Well, factually they were wrong. And there's very, very people whom I very respect in technical sense, but in this sense, they were like absolutely wrong and off of the, off the target. So Google actually won on fair use argument. Supreme Court of the United States did not even go for the copyrightability. They just de declared that Google's use of Java in Android is a fair use. And if I'm not mistaken, that was anonymous on unanonymous. How do you call that? Well, decision where all the judges kind of agree about that. Uh, unanimous. Unanimous. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. So unanimous decision. And I guess in this case, it means that that was the correct decision, even though I kind of think it's not, but you cannot 
argue when all the judge, judges basically agree about that. So Google now is out of this kind of neutralized this threat and Android has a, in my opinion, very bright future because if Google would lose, then basically what, what this means is that the next step will be Oracle trying to grab part of Android's ecosystem, part of profits, part of leverage, and Google would not allow that. And I was really nervous about the implications of that. And in my estimation, Fuchsia is exactly that replacement for Android in case they would lose this lawsuit. Now they, as you say, they didn't lose it. So now I think Android is safe. That's for sure. And the question is, Fuchsia is kind of like, I'm not sure that even Google's execs know where they think is heading. Fuchsia and Flutter, right? So I wouldn't bet on any of them any money. But on the other hand, because they've made, well, because this lawsuit dragged for so long, they actually built the thing, right? So in one of my posts, uh, my conspiracy posts, I, I argued that Fuchsia is about two years from launching. And they launched it about three years later. So I wasn't that, wasn't that off. far off. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, you know, when they launched the thing, it's, it's actually more of a business decision rather than technical one, because I'm pretty sure that um, the platform was ready, was ready long before the actual launch. So I was kind of accurate with my estimation, I guess. Um, but I wouldn't bet any money of Fuchsia and Flutter. It's a, Flutter is a very interesting case because like Flutter can work irrespective of Fuchsia. So you can write applications in Flutter and it's actually a very nice framework. If like, if you'd consider React Native, say, Flutter is a very good alternative in my estimation, maybe even better alternative. I'm not that familiar with React Native to argue that, uh, but uh, maybe. So Flutter can stand on its own, but the question is like, what's in it for Google? Google doesn't make any money on Flutter, but Flutter as a project costs hundreds of millions of dollars. And even for a company, Google size hundreds of millions of dollars and tens of millions of dollars every year, that's a considerable investment. So they need to get something out of it. And the only thing I can see Google getting out of it is that they prevent some, someone else, say Facebook to promote their own cross-platform solution. So that's kind of, you know, kind of a defense line for them, but paying that much money, investing that much into a defense line, I'm not sure it's worth them. It's worth worthwhile investment for them. So that's why I'm saying that no one knows. Even Google's executives probably don't know at this point, like where this thing will go. And uh, I guess we will discuss Jetpack Compose at some point. So we have Jetpack Compose. And the moment I saw Jetpack Compose, I said, guys, this is Flutter in Kotlin. And of course, many people said, no, you, 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 you don't know what you're talking about because Jetpack Compose is just a native UI uh, framework. It is just for Android. It replaces this ugly, uh, cumbersome uh, UI toolkit and it will be the best thing. Well, I guess that's the second time I, I, I say this, right? <laughs> Since last spring. Yeah, 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 exactly. So people were very hyped and they told me like, no, no way this will be cross-platform. Well, now today we know that this will be cross-platform. And mark my word, it's only a matter of time before you hear about Jetpack Compost for iOS. So, and basically Jetpack Compost will target every single platform that Flutter supports. If Flutter supports web, Jetpack Compost will target web as well. So given they will have Jetpack Compost, and that's not something that will happen today, because even though they released version kind of production ready version, for Google it just means that the technology will be ready in one, two years, let's say. Everybody who invests in Jetpack Compost right now, that's just basically a waste of time. 
I guess, you know, if you can negotiate waste of time with your manager, that's, that's cool. I mean, honestly negotiate. But if you like developers who come to their management, they say, this is like the best thing. This will make us productive. This is like, well, let's say I've, um, I don't want to moralize these things. I try not to moralize these things, but at some point I do, ha I do think that developers have the responsibility to be truthful and kind of loyal to their employers. So the question is like, if you say that Jetpack Compose is production ready and it's great and it will make you productive, and then you spend weeks upon weeks working around bugs and, and reading documentation and slowing your project down, like what's the responsibility that you bear for that? In my opinion, you should bear some responsibilities. So that's how I see it. So basically overall Android is fine. I think Android has very bright future. I think next step for Android is automotive. I mean, Android has been in automotive industry for years now, but I see that as the biggest market for uh, operating systems in the next, let's say five to 10, 10 years. So I think like if people would like to invest for the longer term, I would say Android for automotive is the next big thing. Okay. All right. So there, there's a bunch that I want to dig into there, right? So I want to talk a bit about Flutter, but I want to talk about Compose as well, right? So from what I've seen and like I've played with it a little bit, I've not used it in any apps from, from like mostly that's just because it's, it would be very slow for me to build stuff, to learn it and build stuff as opposed to just do the XML and people are paying me to do the job. So they're not paying me to learn, but yeah, that's by the way, something you learn as a, as a freelancer that you don't, you can't possibly learn as a salaried employee, the value of your time, because as an employee, you get kind of global salary and whatever you do at your job. It's very hard to measure the impact, but when you're a freelancer and you charge per, pro per, per hour, you actually know how much your money costs. And if you charge for per project, then it's even more because like the faster you complete it and the better it is, like the more money you make per hour, basically. Yeah. hundred percent. And also like you learn as a freelancer, that stuff that you want to learn, you have to learn in your own time. So then it's just like, when do you have the time to do that? If I, and you if, become very picky about stuff. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. Like I, I wouldn't start learning stuff. You know, I know people were talking about using, you know, composing production apps when it was like in beta and it's like, well, I'm not going to start learning it until it's like at least 1.1 because I don't have the time to learn all the new changes that they've made and stuff. But, exactly. but in terms of compose itself, so in my eyes, compose at some point is going to be like, there's no XML. Now we just do compose. So do you think that's where it's going or not? Because I've also thought the same thing, which is compose is like flutter. But my thought was potentially Compose is introduced to get people familiar with that in case Google then decides like Flutter is the thing that's going forward to build apps. So like, where do you sit there? This last idea, I haven't thought about it. I think it's like too much investment kind of prepare people for Flutter uh, because you have all this legacy code, right? You have all this code that was written for the past 10, 11 years and you can just tell people use Flutter. Flutter is not that viable for, let's say, very big projects, even though I had a chat with people, with developers from Newbank, a Brazilian startup. Well, it's not startup, it's a huge company right now. And they use Flutter, they switch to Flutter and their application is huge. And actually they have customers who say that it's very good. So I guess it can work, but it's like, I mean, if you've, if you've invested 10 years into writing something, you will not jump onto Flutter. But on the other hand, uh, and I don't want to kind of go down this rabbit hole because today it's kind of irrelevant. Um, Google won this lawsuit, so we will probably not be switching 
from Android anytime soon. Uh, but on the other hand, they wanted to prepare for you the option to migrate. And well, this kind of ties into a different uh, topic, huge topic uh, is whether web will win over mobile native. And, and I hear arguments, very, very good arguments actually, but I think people miss the most important part of this puzzle, piece of this puzzle. All these native UI frameworks, whether it's UI toolkit for Android, Compose, Flutter, or whatever they have for iOS, Swift UI, UI toolkit. The reason we don't write HTML and CSS there is because they, these companies want to create um, vendor lock-in. It will be the best solution if, if you would like to develop now a kind of mobile platform, which you want to distribute and which you want developers to use and make it portable and make like the best thing for the world, for the developers, for the users, you would create some kind of a HTML, CSS based UI framework. I'm not saying that you would go for the web because web is something different. Web is kind of real time network communication. That's something different, but you would create uh, something that is based on HTML, CSS. And yes, it would, maybe you could do some somewhat better with, let's say, Compose. Let's assume for a moment that Compose would be somewhat better. But the portability of that and the fact that you have so many developers familiar with that and the fact that this technology is so mature and so well-tested and time-proven, that would spare like years and years, millions of years, year months of, of effort over the course of several years. Why neither Google nor Apple do, do that? Because they want to create uh, when they're looking, they want your Android application to not be portable. They don't want some other company to create a toolkit, which like, for example, take your Android application and run it on, let's say tomorrow, Oracle creates a new device. Microsoft creates a new, uh, a new handheld device. They don't want your application to be portable to that device because this will immediately create an opportunity for external company to come and compete with their market. That's why they have Google Play services, which is kind of closed source. That's why we have all these UI frameworks. That's why all these UI frameworks are so complex. They want to introduce as much barrier for entry, not just for developers, but just for kind of alternative implementers. And I know that people will jump in and say, well, Jetpack Compose, any company can implement that. Look at JetBrain, they implemented Compose for desktop. Well, JetBrain is not any company. JetBrain and Google work in collaboration. I'm not sure what kind, what's the nature of contractual agreements between them, but JetBrains and Google, we can treat them as the same entity at this point, at least when it comes to Kotlin multi-platform compose and stuff like that. So that's my take on it. And in my estimation, compose is the future of Android development. The question is like, <laughs> what's the timeline for this future? And I think that we will stick, we will have XMLs and, and UI toolkit for like many, many years to come. And for an example of that, you can take a look at what happened to Kotlin in general, right? So Kotlin was 100% interoperable, productive, the best thing after sliced bread, of course. And it was, it was amazing. And developers sold Kotlin to their employees right after that Google I.O. when they kind of uh, announced the first class support. And now, more than four years later, 
where we stand, well, <laughs> maybe 50% of the applications are Kotlin, re, like I mean, have Kotlin in them. Maybe new applications probably mostly are written in Kotlin. I don't think many people start new projects today in Java, even though there are such projects, especially in kind of, um, how do you call them? Conservative industries, like let's say banking and stuff. If you have like 100 developers who are familiar with Java, it's harder to argue. So I'm pretty sure that there are projects that start with Java, but most of them start with Kotlin. But you do have all this legacy, which hasn't been refactored. And many code bases, and I fortunately see them, well, not unfortunately, unfortunately, because that's how I make my living. Um, and many code bases are just total mess. It's like 50% Kotlin, 50% Java, let's say 50-50. And it's a completely unstructured. So I helped some companies uh, migrate, start their migration to Kotlin. And you actually need to think about that. And people say, well, we will start just introducing Kotlin and refactor as we go. We will write new stuff in Kotlin and they also, well, that's one of the worst ways to go about this because then what you have is like a very bizarre mix between Kotlin and Java. You don't have any boundaries around this stuff. You don't have any control over how it happens. You just kind of constantly need to, to start. And if you are a big company, it creates a problem because all your developers need to know both Java and Kotlin. You cannot possibly assign some area of ownership to a new developer, let's say, who learned Android development in the past two years. They, they don't know Java that well, but they're proficient in, in Kotlin. So now you need to, like, they will need to, to learn Java. So you waste company's time on that. Um, so Kotlin is kind of a messy thing. And in my estimation, Compose will be even messier than that. So, I mean, if you don't learn Compose in the next one, two years, nothing will happen. But um, many developers, just like, like when I wrote my infamous and, and the most controversial article probably about Kotlin about four years ago, I had this, the comment section is like, you are like, watch yourself being uh, kind of thrown out. You will be like, you will not have the job. You will be left behind because Kotlin is the future, the companies, blah, blah, blah. Well, I know Kotlin today. I write in Kotlin, but I learned Kotlin about two years after everybody learned it. And still like, uh, I have a lot of job work in Java. Compose will be the same. I, I say that, you know, if you want to, to try it, like one of my clients actually asked me about that, asked me, what do you think about Compose? And I told them like, it's very interesting stuff. And I would, I'd, I'd really like to try it myself if you'd like to, but I don't recommend using it because it's like a time waster. So they said, well, you know, we, we just want to check that for the future, blah, blah, blah. So maybe we'll write several scripts in Compose. I'm like, yeah, sure. You want to pay me to learn Compose? That's like, like you won't say, you won't hear no from me, but I'm honest with them about the fact that, you know, it's pretty much just an investment into exploration on their side, not an investment into productivity or end result. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think... So like I like I said I've played with it a little bit. Um, I think I would be very like if a client came to me and said they want to write the app and compose and they understood like you know right for me to write these seven screens is going to take me a week in XML and it's going to take me three in compose and they were happy with that I would gladly do it because I could definitely see the benefits of it. But I think to your point what you said like a big portion of that is 
the difference between being a developer, reading all the new stuff, working at home, and maybe just, you know, working for one company as to being a freelancer is that as a freelancer, like you see Compose came out, you know, I don't know when the first launch was, like two years ago, let's say. And two years later, I've I've not used it once. And I know for a fact that it's very unlikely I'll be using it in the next two years in a professional capacity because that's not how the industry works, right? It's the same as to what you said. It's like, I get projects all the time now. And I don't think once I've had a project that wasn't that I wrote from scratch that was just all Kotlin. It's always Java and Kotlin because companies don't have money to be like, oh, let's migrate all of this code over for basically zero business benefit. So it, it makes no sense. We'll get right back to the show. But first, I just wanted to remind you that if you're enjoying this episode, if you feel it's bringing you value, then it would mean a lot to me if you shared it with a friend or fellow developer. That's it. Just hit the share button in your podcast app of choice and you know what to do. Now, back to the show. Something that you said about um, like to do with Java and Kotlin made me think, because I, I saw that you'd written, I think it was even an article or a tweet, I'm not sure, about Dagger. And I think it was a tweet and you were like, Dagger 2, and you, you didn't seem that impressed with it. And I guess my my experience in companies that use like dependency injection, specifically Dagger, is I find it super complicated for what it is. And I don't think mm-hmm. I've ever worked with anybody that doesn't use Dagger by basically seeing what somebody else has done, copy and paste, and then just change the names and hopefully it works. So I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on like that because so so my personal preference, right, is is coin. Like I like dependency injection. I like coin because it's super straightforward, right? I just mm-hmm. write get brackets, it's done. I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to create modules or whatever. And when it doesn't work, it tells me it's because you're missing an import here. Whereas when Dagger doesn't work, it tells me, you know, here's this generated class file, there's an error in there somewhere, go figure it out. Sometimes not even that, it's just, you know, Dagger application company not found. Exactly, no, exactly. Like, what, what does that mean? And, and but, yeah. I, but I've also not heard anybody really say, like, it's not to use it. Like, I feel like I was the only one advocating for companies, like, let's not use this. You know, it could take us a day to move to something else and productivity goes up because it's so much easier. Yeah, well, you put me in an interesting position as the author of probably the most comprehensive course about Dagger. To talk about Dagger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see. Okay, first of all, if you ever saw me kind of arguing against Dagger, that was probably against Dagger Android. And I know it's confusing. Um, I mean, some developers know the difference, some developers don't. So just quickly, we've had Dagger 1, which was developed by Square, forget about no one uses that anymore, except for maybe you will find it in some very, very old applications, legacy code. And then Square transferred the ownership over Dagger to Google, and that was Dagger 2, and that's what we call Dagger today. At some point, after like a year or two, Google decided that they like want to implement something. And Dagger is not specific to Android. Google used Dagger even on backend side, I think, of things. Um, but then they decided that they can improve Dagger for Android specifically and implemented something called Dagger Android. And that's a shitty name. I mean, yeah, no, their, their naming is always terrible, though. Yeah, yeah, they, you could come up with one hundred other names easily that wouldn't confuse things like that. But I think the naming is intentionally was chosen to confuse developers into using this thing. So they don't, they didn't want to kind of explain. They didn't try and didn't want, in my estimation, to explain like you can use Dagger without this new package. They actually wanted developers to use it, the force developer. And I haven't used this thing ever in production, but when it came out, um, I just evaluated it and I saw that like, it's very, very bad. 
and I had a conversation on Reddit with the developers of the thing, and I realized that they don't understand what they're doing. I know it sounds kind of arrogant and condescending, but like, I mean, they didn't understand the basic, um, the fundamental need for dependency injection. What's the motivation for dependency injection? So kind of, you know, going downstream for, from that, you get Dagger Android. And I know that many people will argue that that's not the case. Even Jake Wharton, uh, we've had like epic arguments with him about Dagger Android on Reddit back then when I was active on Reddit. So what I say is just my personal opinion, of course. So Dagger Android was a very bad idea to begin with, but Google promoted it, developers used it, and then they deprecated it. It's not officially deprecated yet, but let's be honest about it. The moment they announced Hilt, even before that, they just announced that they're working on something else. It was clear the Dagger Android initiative is dead in the waters. And the reason for that is because it's really, really complicated. And well, unfortunately, <laughs> that's for unfortunately for sure. I am working now with a client who does have some uh, strange setup with Dagger Android in their application. And it's just everything I, I, I feared it to be like, it's, it's just, just exactly what I, what, what I would expect. It's a huge mess. So Dagger Android is just bad, forget about it. Now, standard Dagger, vanilla Dagger, well, there are benefits and downsides. The downside is the complexity and the downside is a very poor documentation, like really, really bad documentation. Uh, well, the notorious thermosiphon example, uh, maybe developers who like several years into Android will remember that. I use Dagger, I like it. I think it does, it solves the problem. Uh, it's especially good for initial development. Like when I'm just oh, like months ago, I started writing new um, bank, new application, and there I use Dagger, and it allows me to go really fast because it takes care of much stuff for me. Is it for everybody? Well, no, it's not. For very big projects, and when I say very big, I mean like, let's say 200,000 lines of code, 100,000 lines of code, and 200 and there. So like the size of the project that most applications never get to, right? For very big projects, Dagger might create a problem. Well, Dagger might create a problem for very small projects if you use it very poorly, like if you don't understand what you're doing and you're not cautious, it can create problems right away. But let's say myself, I myself, and I use it, and I think I have a very good understanding of it. At some point, I will just, you know, for this application that I'm writing, uh, if I will be maintaining it after the fact, I think that at some point when the code base stabilizes, because what's the point of the dependency injection framework? It takes care of all this uh, wiring for you, right? And then when you just kickstart the application, you kind of explore the business domain. You constantly change things, right? You say, okay, I will create this use case for payment and this use case for user and this case. And then you discover, hmm, that's not exactly the correct distinction division because it, it makes much better, it much, makes much more sense to let's say create user and customer as two separate entities because these are not the same, right? And once you come to this conclusion, you have, well, if you've done a good job, you have a moderate amount of work to do, but this work will pay off. If you've done a poor job, you have a huge amount of work to do and you will never do that. But let's assume that you've done a good job and you can actually make this split at some point in the future. Then using Dagger saves you a lot of time because you just throw this at inject annotations whenever, whenever you need it. 
and all this rewiring happens during code generation, you don't need to take care of that. But when, when you work on a big application, major application, you don't have these kind of changes anymore. You usually have something very, um, very solid. It, it, it can be good or bad, but you cannot change it easily. That's my point. And then you add and you modify small things. So basically you can work like, when I refactor code, I can work like for three days. And then the end result is like 100 times of code changed. <laughs> so, so when you get out of, let's say 200,000, right? <laughs> so when you get to that point, all this wiring, like all this code generation is not that necessary anymore. It's just a blot on your, it's just a additional time for builds, for example. And at that point, something like pure dependency inch actually, when you manually write and wire all this stuff would make much more sense because there are not that many changes there. So the question is like, where is this border where, where I would say it makes sense to use dependency injection framework and then refactor it to the to manual dependency injection and how long will it take? So that's kind of a question. And as for dagger versus coin, well, I think coin is a very nice dependency injection framework, right? I tried it. In my experience, it's more limited than dagger. So for example, I couldn't find easily how to create, uh, let's say, activity scope in coin. So you can create this global stuff and it's very easy and straightforward. But then I tried to create activity scope to, to provide, let's say, activity scope dependency, let's say, fragment manager. How do you provide fragment manager in coin? I couldn't find a very, maybe, maybe there is a way, but I couldn't find it uh, quickly enough. And also when I work for clients, again, I try like, there is something to be said about the better solution. There are many solutions that I think are better than, let's say, what the industry uses. But at the end of the day, you, we need to think about long-term maintainability. And using something that is marginally better, but no one knows about, is not a very good uh, idea for the client, right? Because they will hire someone. And if that someone knows, I don't think, I don't know what's, uh, let's take for example, Let's say, I don't, Glide, let's say Glide, right? Everybody knows Glide, everybody uses Glide. And there are this new thing called Coil, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, it's like the Kotlin specific. Exactly, library. something blah, yeah. blah, blah, Kotlin. Basically, Kotlin is 100% interoperable with Java, but for some reason we rewrote the entire ecosystem in Kotlin. But yeah, there's no additional work in there at all. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's better but I don't even care to evaluate whether it's better or not until I see it, until I see at least, let's say 25, 40% of people using coil. For me, it's like no go. It's like, it doesn't matter if I like it or not. It's no. So this argument also goes in favor of Dagger or today maybe even Hilt. All right, that makes sense. And I, I was gonna say, so like personally, I don't like Dagger and that's mostly because I get brought on projects with Dagger that's not done well. And it adds time to me, like just to like, you know, I want to build a class with a view model and stuff. It should take me, you know, whatever the time period is, it takes me like 1.5 times because I do it. It doesn't work. Right. How have they done this? Right. Okay. They've got this thing here. So, and that's the reason that I like coins because when you jump into a project it's so, and I imagine it is limited, but I've also not worked on projects where they make use of dagger in the way that it should be made use of. So for coin, it's like, it's super easy, right? There's one class usually. And all you do is you write your, your thing in, you just put get in the brackets and it works and everybody could understand it. 
And so you might miss out on features, but the ramp up time is basically the same as not using dependency injection because I know exactly how to use it. But I, I wanted to jump. So so I, I wanted to mention that I have a, like a hard out because I have stand up because technically I'm supposed to be working now. So if if you want to go longer than 15 minutes, we can jump off and come back. But I, I wanted to ask a question that kind of looped back to the start because I meant to ask and, and it kind of slipped my mind, which was like with the COVID stuff. Right. And you were saying, you know, your, your courses went down and then they went up for like a little bit and then they went down. Um, and freelance work and, you know, clients were, were afraid to pay money because they didn't know what's going to happen. So with that in hindsight, do you have any thoughts about how developers could better prepare? Like, is do you have, I guess for your own self, like, do you have a plan of like, let's say tomorrow they're like, right, COVID-2 is here and we're all going into lockdown for six months and the same situation hits. Like, do you have any kind of thoughts about how people could work around that? Because I would have thought having courses, like that would be ideal, right? You have something that people can buy. They've got time. They want to pay for the courses. So it makes up for your income. And it seemed like it did for a bit and then it didn't. It's like, do you have any thoughts about how to approach that? Or have you thought about that yourself? Well, the best thing you can do is to have savings, right? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. That's like no brainer. And now I, well, that's this, brings us into the realm of like, you know, finance management. I do a very poor job. I live on the edge. Well, I used to live on the edge of that. Like, for example, I had several startups, startups, like projects that I was interested in and I poured my own money into these projects, right? So, so for me, something like how COVID was actually like stressful, right? Because, because I didn't have that much savings and I didn't want to, to spend my savings. And, um, actually courses were like very, like I, it's it kind of diversified, right? Well, one thing you can do is, is savings. And the other one is to diversify your income. Now, diversifying your income is not something for everybody because it takes a lot of, a lot of work upfront. And also like, you don't know, maybe both of your diversified incomes will go down. But I would say that, you know, if you, if you're a full-time employer and well, at the very least, like diversifying yourself means you go routinely on interviews, even if you don't look for work, because if something like COVID hits and you've had your last interview five years ago and your company closes or even not COVID, like for any reason, your company closes, then you have a problem on your hand because you've, you're like not skilled at interviewing. What makes this problem worse is like in times like COVID, when everything shuts down, the demand for the work exceeds the the supply by many orders of magnitude, at least for several months, that was the case. And so like you can be the top of your field, but many people who are top of their field got out into this, um, into looking for, uh, for a new job. So now you being just top of the field is not enough. You need to provide something else. Maybe it is a personal blog. Like if you have a personal brand, this helps. But if not, again, personal brand is also something you invest a lot of time into, right? It's not something that you just <laughs> casually earn on the way. That's that's a that's a work, a lot of work. But even if not, if if not that, if you cannot, like I mean, imagine uh, people who have multiple kids, you know, and maybe decided to have kids at an early age, which at my at my at this point in time, I would maybe encourage in some way. Uh, but like they don't have time to <laughs> to build personal brand. They need to work. They hopefully work is interesting and meaningful, but they don't have extra time. So at the very least, I would say you know 
be in shape for this situation, be in shape for interviewing, be in shape with your technical skills, you know, understand what's going on in your industry, because I see these developers who like maybe five, 10 years of professional development, uh, but they don't know uh, anything about kind of newer technologies. And I'm not talking about Jetpack Compose. I'm talking about stuff, I mean, Kotlin. I mean, at this point in time, you can get away without knowing Kotlin, but why would you do that? I mean, it takes basically two weeks to write some hello world application and understand what's that, what's, again, Dagger, right? You know, Dagger, take a course, 10 bucks on Udemy, like, I mean, really it's, it's a cost of a beer or two beers if you live in, a, in some other country. For me, it's even less than a beer. So, you know, prepare yourself. And then if this thing hits, you're in a much better position. But generally speaking, savings, savings and investing, you know, into, let's say, um, real estate. If you are at the point in your career when you have enough savings to do that, that will be probably the best. I mean, if you've had, like, I don't have my own place, right? So I pay rent. And this immediately puts me into a group of people for whom it's very super important to have a relatively high income. But if you could like save and, and have your own place, even if it's smaller than when crisis hits, you are in much better shape because you don't need to pay for, for, for the rent, which is like the, the biggest expense people have, well, most people have. Yeah. And then you buy a house and then you switch that expense out for a mortgage, which actually, at least in this country, works out like we pay... I think 200 pounds less for a house than we did for an apartment in terms of like rent versus mortgage. So it still worked out better. Yeah. I mean, it's, it depends in, in our country, it's even the difference is bigger because you can't have a mortgage if you don't put like 30% right. yeah, of yeah, yeah. the sum up front. So your mortgage will be probably lower than your, um, and your, than, than the same, than, than basically renting the same place. And again, if you can't pay mortgage, then guess what? You still have options. No, no one will throw you out of your home. And in these times of crisis, right? People understand, like people couldn't pay mortgages and banks say to them, okay, we understand it's a crisis. We will freeze your mortgage for a year without additional interest. You know, take your time. We understand it's difficult for everybody. We don't want now to create, in addition to COVID, in addition to lockdowns and all this stuff that happened, we don't want to create, <laughs> to create throw like a people. homeless crisis. Exactly. Like people, you know, selling their apartments for, for, for like half the price. No one, no one really wants that. So I would say, you know, investing into yourself, diversifying your income, buying a home, if you can do that, that will be a very good idea for preparing for crisis. All right. So, so I'm, I'm going to wrap and I would really like to have you on the show again, because I feel like there's so much more to cover, but I have a question, right? Which is, is, this is a question for you, which is, you have a personal brand, right? You have a blog, you have a big Twitter presence. When you talk about stuff, people listen, whether they agree or they don't agree, somehow everybody's heard it, right? So my question to you is how comes, and if I've missed this, then then that's my bad, but how comes you don't have a podcast? Because I would listen to your podcast and you have a studio and you have a good microphone and you have good sound. So that, that that's just my question for you. I'm pretty sure I will have a podcast, but I'm also pretty sure it won't be technical. Oh, I okay. tried. I've I have several interviews on my YouTube channel, uh, so I tried that, and it it wasn't bad. It was interesting, and I learned a lot of new stuff. But then I just caught myself that it's not interesting enough for me 
will speak about to talk about technical stuff to actually invest the work because it's one thing to be guest on the podcast but as you know <laughs> it's, it's a totally different, different yeah. investment to be a host for the podcast so it's like a, another uh, another job and um my, my like my role model something that i would like to do i really envy joe rogan and i do understand that like no one in no universe i will be where joe rogan is but I mean, the ability to bring different peoples from very different realms and talk about their stuff and, and get to know these people and hear what they have to say is just amazing. And actually, I kind of involved in this activity as well, but we've had the podcast with a couple of friends, but it was in Hebrew. So it's like my local stuff thing. And maybe sometime I will try to do that in English, but... I guess I need to have some more uh, real life experience with their life, you know, uh, to, to, to actually manage that um, outside of the technical realm. So I, I, really, I really think that I will have a podcast at some time, just not, I mean, I don't, I, I don't enjoy, um, I don't, not, it's not that, I enjoy very much talking with people and hearing their ideas and their experiences. But it feels to me limited to do that in the context of technical area. And if I invite people to talk about Flutter, let's say, I need to talk with them about Flutter. I cannot go on a 30 minutes tangent to talk about life. And I really, I, I, like when I did these interviews, I constantly caught myself that I want to go on the tangent. <laughs> I, want, I want to jump out. And this told me like, okay, so that's why I didn't uh, proceed with uh, that yeah that that makes sense i mean on a personal level i would i would more than happily listen to like because i feel like a lot of my conversations i try and not make them about one thing because like i could just talk to you about android and then that would be it but then one you like you there's a bunch of audience that doesn't want to hear that i find it more interesting like i could talk to a bunch of people about android but essentially we're both repeating things that we already know so i feel like it's more interesting to be like okay like you know we talk about covid or you know you talked about like yeah. buying a house or whatever so I personally, I would listen to that. I totally understand, though, it is a huge time investment. And depending on how well it goes, it's either a time investment for fun or it's a time investment for money. But as of yet for me, it's still a time investment for fun. So I get that. Well, I guess I guess that would be the topic for our next podcast, because I can't see how it's for you just time investment for fun. I'm pretty sure that you get offers. You're well known in the industry by this point. And I'm pretty sure that you get some, uh, how do you call it? some leads on, on jobs. It's interesting, right? I, I don't think yet that I've had a lead no? from, no, but I definitely think that when people, like people find me on LinkedIn all the time. And I, I assume that's just because my profile is like really easily searchable. And I'm pretty sure that I get more um, approaches now from like serious people, not just people spamming LinkedIn because they see that I have a podcast and it's, and, and it looks to people like, oh, he must be really good because he has a podcast, even though, you know, it's not, it's not a, like yeah, a parameter yeah. of that. So I definitely think it helps. I don't think anybody's found me. I, I know that people have found me. I don't think jobs have found me, but I definitely get um, messages from people that have found the podcast or have just started following me because they started listening to it. But I actually think it's, I've helped more people get jobs through my podcast through them reaching out to me and saying, Hey Rob, I really want to go freelance or like, can you have a look at my CV and me doing that and helping them get work? Then it has helped me get work. Well, that's very admir admirable. I mean, it's, it's really fun though. Like it's really nice that somebody will message me because I've had people message me and they're like, I had one guy um, who messaged me on, on like the coffee and coding Slack. And he was like, 
um, Rob, I really want to get a job in Android, but I don't think I'm ready yet. And I was like, all right, cool. Tell me, like, what do you know? And he basically listed, like, if you think about all the YouTube videos that you've done, he knows everything, right? He knows more than I know. I've, he's talking about stuff that I've heard about that I've never used. And I was like, what, what is like, what is it that you're waiting for? Cause you know, everything, you just don't have the experience. Yeah. Um, and, and he was like, I don't know. And I think it was a big, like imposter syndrome thing. Right. So exactly. I, I think I put him in, somebody had messaged me about a role. I didn't want to do the role. It was like the rate was like really junior or something like that. So I said, why don't you check out this guy? He ended up getting the job and now he's an Android developer. And it's weird because he was already an Android developer, but he didn't see himself that way. And now it's official. It's like, okay, now he's an Android developer, quote unquote. So it's, well, it's, that's, that's will be our topic for the next discussion because I actually like doing that. I don't do that that much, but I've had several experiences like that. And I'm very into teaching. I really like mentoring. And actually, like, if not for COVID, I would open, I decided to open like, uh, frontal, like in-person Android courses. I want to teach people in person, person, and I don't want to just, you know, throw some material there. I want to take them and see them like going out. So, so I, I think this will be a very good starting to topic for our next discussion. All right, cool. All right. Yeah. No, let's definitely, let's definitely do that. Cause I, I've also had that same thought. Um, and I would love to talk about that too. But before, so before we wrap, can you just tell people where can they find your courses? Where can they find you on Twitter, YouTube, all that good stuff? Okay. So um, on Twitter, you can find me, Vasily Zukan. Basically, just search for my name. And my website is uh, techyourchance, tech like technology, yourchance.com. That's my personal blog. And for my courses, they're currently, all of them are on Udemy. And the last one, um, Git for software developers. Just for you to know, I'm not satisfied with it. Uh, there are probably better courses out there. Um, that was a kind of a flop from my perspective, and I will probably either reproduce it from scratch or like take it down at some point. Okay. All right. Cool. So maybe we'll we'll talk about that as a topic of the next discussion as well. Oh yeah, I can tell you all about my failures. That's my, fa <laughs> that's my favorite topic where I screwed up. Awesome. People just assume that some, some, for some reason I do everything right. No, I screw up like much more than an average dude out there. All right. I'm, I'm going to make a note of this, like, like Vasily's failures. And we'll, I'll just ask you the question, tell me about your failures. And then we'll just go from there. Yeah, awesome. that'll be great. And that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or fellow developer. And if you really want to support the show, you can do so with a coffee donation at coffeeencodingpod.com forward slash donate. And if you don't want to miss future episodes of the show, make sure you follow or subscribe in your podcast app of choice. Thanks for listening. And I'll catch you on the next episode of the Coffee Encoding Podcast.